emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Klass. And on today's show, folks, our, inter- our second interview with Michael Munger. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great, Ron. I'm just, you know, the week has just been fa- fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> like I, we were just saying before we get on, it's like, didn't, it seems like Ruth Bader Ginsburg died like 10 years ago. Years ago. I know, I know. <laughs> the news cycle is just unbelievable. Well, Ed, I don't want to delay any longer. No. Let's get uh, Professor... Professor Michael Munger received his PhD in economics at Washington University in St. Louis in 1984. Following his graduate training, he worked as a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission, which we've never had a chance to talk to him about. I'd like to ask him about his experience. He moved to Duke in 1997 and was chair of the political science department from 2000 through 2010 and is currently director of the interdisciplinary PPE program at Duke University. Michael Munger, welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. It is such a pleasure to be here, even if it is 2020. I saw a picture the other day of a porta potty that was furiously on fire. And the caption said, if 2020 was a scented candle. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that is so true. That's, that's what you would be smelling. I love those memes. Well, <laughs> Mike, we had you last time on uh, in May of 2018. So just real quick, how have you been holding up with COVID? How's it affect your work at Duke? How's it been going? I'm, I am teaching my classes in person. Um, Duke is able to test the students twice a week. We've only had about 55 cases total. Uh, so it hasn't changed much. I mostly work at home when I'm writing and I teach in class. I, I don't travel as much. I used to travel every week. And so it is strange always being at home. And I'm a little bit worried because I've been married for 30 years, more than almost 35. And my wife claims the reason we've been married so long is that I travel all the time. So I'm, I'm a little worried that there's going to be trouble. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, you know, last time we had you on, we talked about your book, uh, to, uh, Tomorrow 3.0, which had just come out that year in 2018. This time, I'm dying to talk to you about your 2019 book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? Which, is it true that was a collection of like different essays you wrote between 2005 and 2019? It was between 2000, yeah, 2005, 2019. It waited a little bit more towards the end. And I, I rewrote them a bit and then wrote kind of introductions to try to hang them together because there it is a collection of essays, but there is a theme. And that's there why is. the title is, Is Capitalism Sustainable? So before we give the spoiler alert and you give the answer to that question, Is Capitalism Sustainable? Why did you feel the need to put that book together last year? There was a lot of different essays and I would get emails from people saying, well, I never saw this essay before. This is actually pretty useful. And some of some of them were, were kind of old, but it aged well. One of the advantages of having, I think I had 200 to choose from, and we ended up choosing 50. Um, it's, it's like a best of series. The ones that suck, you can leave out. 
and the ones that are, if there's enough of them, the ones that are pretty good, you can put in the anthology and it makes you look pretty talented. So the, I thought it was useful to have, uh, to try to make a coherent argument, an extended argument about the current situation of capitalism. And I have to admit, uh, Ron, that the reason why that particular time what that I was worried about, and it, it has proven more true than I was than I would have expected, was that I thought that some of the criticisms that the left had been making for a while that had been ignored, frankly, by pro-market people like me were more correct than I would like to admit. They actually have a point. There is an inherent tendency in capitalism towards cronyism. Right, right. No, you talk a lot about that, and I want to get that get get there with you. You you also gave the definition of sustainability, I think, from the Environmental Protection Agency's website, the, the meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. You, using that definition, Mike, is capitalism sustainable? I think that capitalism is not sustainable in a free and open democracy. So it might be sustainable in a dictatorship like Hong Kong or Singapore. But in a free and open democracy, the problem is that I want to earn profits. And the logic of capitalism is that the pursuit of profits over the long term redounds to the benefit of the public because I produce consumer surplus. And so that's a technical economics word that we all recognize. Um, the benefit of capitalism is that I produce things that have a big difference between what I would pay for them and what I have to pay for them. So it seems like Apple makes a lot of pro uh, profits from selling phones. But a lot of people would pay 2000 Some psychos would pay 4000 I don't get it. But a lot of people would pay a lot for the newest Apple iPhone. They'll stand in line and then spend $4,000 for it. So those are the benefits. It, it, they're willing to pay 4000 They have to pay 900 If you add that up across all of the different people who buy stuff. So in the, one of the essays in the book, I asked the question, what if you had to buy a ticket to go to Costco? Well, you have to pay a little bit, but if you had to pay the amount that it's actually worth to you, what is it worth? To, what would it be worth to buy a ticket to Walmart? I'd probably pay $2,000 to get into Walmart if that was the only place where I could buy stuff. So your ticket to capitalism is free. You get all of these benefits. The pursuit of profits drives entrepreneurs and producers to find a way to make these things available to you. Sometimes I see something that I didn't even know exist, and now I have to have it. Except that also inherent in the logic of capitalism is the fact that I can seek favors from the government. I can seek favorable treatment, favorable regulation, and in many cases, outright subsidies. Those are just as profitable, but they don't produce any of the benefits. Well, that's terrible because the logic of capitalism means that the pursuit of accounting profits is going to divert people away from making things that people want to buy to basically selling it to Congress and then using tax law to benefit from it. So th that's what I call cronyism. I think capitalism is not sustainable. And given that you're right about the definition, that means that we're not investing in the plant and equipment and the competitiveness, frankly, that we face against other countries countries, because other countries are still investing in plant and equipment and research, we're eating our seed corn. 
We're giving subsidies to companies. We're bailing them out. And you can't blame those companies. You can't blame a dog for eating out of the garbage. It's what dogs do. But we can put the garbage someplace the dogs can't get it. You call it the road to cronyism. And do you see any path off that road if, if we stick with democracy? There's a lot of turnarounds. So the analogy that I make, people might recognize that in 1944, Friedrich Hayek wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom. And he didn't say that it was necessarily true that any attempt to manipulate or uh, manage prices would lead to a result where we got to socialism. But it, there's a tendency. If you start to manage price, then it distorts parts of the economy, and then you have, to, you have to regulate another part of the economy, and there's a cascade. I think that the road to cronyism works the same way. There's a bunch of turnarounds. There's a bunch of places you can slow down and take a break. But by and large, we're heading in that direction. There is one good thing, and that is I think that there is a life cycle for companies. So if you look at Microsoft, Microsoft for years kind of bragged they didn't have a single lobbyist. Now they have an entire building on K Street in Washington. So as, as a firm, as an industry matures, you start to get to a situation where you invest, and I'm using invest with air quotes, which makes for great radio, I realize, but you, <laughs> we're, we're, we're investing in things that are profitable but are not producing anything for the future. But we have a lot of new companies. Uber doesn't do much lobbying. They may have to. Uh, a lot of the sharing economy companies, a lot of the companies that are active in the blockchain space, are they're, they're making too much money by producing value. At some point, it becomes harder to produce value, and then you turn towards the government to give you value that is taken at gunpoint from taxpayers. So I, I don't really think that there's a way of stopping it. However, as long as we have enough permissionless innovation, as long as we have enough new creative energy from entrepreneurs making new products and new firms, then it'll take a decade or more for those new firms to turn to cronyism. So as long as the economy's dynamic, my, the, short, the short answer, which I should have started with, is as long as the economy's dynamic, we're okay. I'm worried that we're going to enter an Elizabeth Warren kind of era, she won't be president, but she may be in charge of regulation. That, that viewpoint may be in charge of regulation where we're more concerned about control of the economy than we are the dynamism of the economy. Right now, you, that was brilliant. You anticipated my next question because you said the most important concept in political economy is permissionless innovation. I thought that was a pretty profound statement because we've had Adam Thierer on and he wrote that book, Permission, Permissionless. And he also wrote another one called Evasive Entrepreneurs, the Ubers of the world and the, you know, they go around the regulation. So you're, you're somewhat optimistic if we, as long as we have that constant dynamism, that constant creative destruction and entrepreneurs that we can overcome the road to cronyism. James C. Scott, the sociologist, anthropologist at Yale University, uh, is, is an amazing anarchist sort of turn. So he has a, a famous book, The Art of Not Being Governed, and then another one called mm -hmm. Seeing Like a State. And so he talks about these tribes that have moved to the mountains of Southeast Asia, and they've never been governed. There's, there's a basic human tendency to think, I'm going to try to escape. And it's not everybody, but the people who are not willing to live by the strictures of others. It's a, a basic human tendency. 
And entrepreneurs tend to be that sort of people. They're not willing to accept things as they are. Entrepreneurship, uh, Israel Kirzner said, was an awareness that allows you to see, be, see around the corner. Now, you can't literally see around the corner, but you can imagine a world different than it is. People who have that kind of imagination and that sort of creative energy are really unwilling to accept the need for, it's not need, the requirement, the government requirement, that I have to go and get somebody else's permission before I can create this thing that I want to. So the, the what we see is working in parallel. It's always kind of an arms race. We see a movement towards more and more government control and more and more ways around government control at the same time. So I, I am actually optimistic because the ability to be an entrepreneur, I can create an app and I can put it up on an app store. I can live in Afghanistan. I can live in a small town in South America. I can be working on a feature phone, but I know enough to program. I write the app, I put it up, and it enables peer-to-peer -peer transactions between two people in, de in the developed world. They've never met me. They don't need to know me. So we have, we have more of an opportunity for permissionless innovation than we ever have, as long as we can keep, get the government to keep its mitts off these platforms that allow us to, to sell new apps. Excellent. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're up against our break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. Check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com, where we'll link to where you can find uh, Michael Munger's work and his books. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise 
We're talking with Duke University's Professor Michael Munger about his book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? and other topics. And and I, I, I thought I would be remiss, Michael, if I didn't ask you about something that uh, has come up in the news lately. It's I think September 13th was the 50th anniversary of what's known as the Friedman Doctrine and his article, The Social Responsibility of Businesses to Increase Its Profits. And uh, the, the New York Times had a huge symposium about it. But I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because this is something that 50 years on, we're still talking a lot about the fact that corporations need to do more than just profit, produce profits. They need to sustain something else. They need to create uh, value for society some other place. What are your thoughts on the, the Friedman Doctrine? The, 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 the original Friedman Doctrine was in a relatively short article where he was answering a, basically a, a question, an objection that said that corporations, because they're chartered by the public, have certain obligations to the public that extend beyond what the law says. And he said he thought that that was not true and that the corporations are actually chartered for a specific reason. Um, the reason is to earn profits with limited liability. So there is, there is only a certain amount of uh, responsibility that the stockholders have for the behavior of the company. There's sort of a, a legal barrier where they cannot be sued for debts above and beyond what all of the assets of the company are. So the corporation is a specific kind of legal fiction. Now, the reason that people invest in corporations are varied. So I might want to invest in a corporation so that I can earn profits and then make contributions to the opera. You might want to invest in the corporation, and then when you get profits or dividends, you can invest in a homeless shelter or give it to orphans. So Friedman's question is, why would you think that requiring that all the owners of a corporation have to give to the same charities, that they all have the same idea about what social responsibility should be, will result in more investment. It will actually result in less, because I... Then the reason that I would invest is only if I care about what that company is investing in, not for profits, but for social responsibility. So if you more people know about what's going on in their own communities, if they take their dividends and they take their capital gains and they invest in their local communities, the improvement in social justice and social welfare will be much greater. Now, people took this and they misinterpreted it and said that what Friedman is saying is that corporations have no social responsibilities. And he did a bunch of interviews later on. So the people that were responding to his original article are charlatans. He said what he meant was the pursuit of honest profit as opposed to what public choice scholars call rent seeking or cronyism. So it is wrong, it is, it, is, it is morally wrong, Friedman would say, to use, to invest in uh, ways of getting subsidies or tax benefits from the government. The, the corporation should not do that. That's a mistake, they shouldn't do that. What they should do is earn profits from producing products that people want to make. And the reason is those profits are assigned that those activities, Full stop. Those activities themselves are worthwhile because we know people are deriving consumer surplus. They're benefiting from those products. And then we take the dividends and capital gains. It goes out to a million different people all over the world. 
And each of them invests in the way that they think is most socially responsible. So Friedman would, would, would come back at his critics in the later interviews, which people have just ignored, which really makes me angry, and said, why would you think that a single corporate executive would have enough information, much less the inclination, to do what is necessary to provide all these myriad different needs in different communities. He doesn't know that there's a homeless shelter needs near me that could really use $500. So that, that the, the sort of centralization that the opponents of Friedman are asking for is just nonsensical. It really pisses me off. Well, I'm glad I got you riled up on a Friday here. <laughs> well, if that if that's if that gets you going, you're going to love my next question, which was an article that came across my desk from of all places Teen Vogue, which is now banned in my house, by the way. Uh, so here's the quote: Ready? Capitalism is defined as the economic system in which a country's trade and industry and profits are controlled by private companies. Here's the kicker: instead of by the people whose time and labor powers those companies <laughs> to, to, to be fair at uh, at duke university where i teach that definition would be very much in vogue you see what i did there <laughs> yes I did. Uh, well done <laughs> the, the fact is that is a it's a very common definition and it's interesting that uh bernie sanders for example says he wants democratic socialism and so he admires sweden and so actually one of the articles in the book says Sweden is a capitalist country. I, I document the fact that Sweden is one of the 10 most capitalist countries in the world. One difference is that in Sweden, unions are much less antagonistic towards management. And it is true that union management relations in Sweden for a variety of cultural and other reasons are different. If that's what you mean by democratic socialism, where you have a very capitalist system, Sweden, it's easier to start a company than it is in the United States. Their corporate income tax rate is half what it is in the United States. So Sweden is an exuberantly, robustly capitalist country. And they'll, they'll tell you uh, in the, the history, 91, 92, they wanted to have a welfare state. And they realized that socialism was not capable of generating enough economic activity to give them a welfare state. The only way that you can have a welfare state, the only way you can solve the problem of poverty is to have capitalism. Now, the problem is that creates inequality. And so the, the argument in vogue there was, oh, this, all this inequality is bad. Well, there's nobody trying to cross a wall to get out of the United States. They're trying to cross a wall to get into the United States because poor people in the U.S. are better off than middle class people in most of the world. So we have solved largely by world standards the problem of poverty. You can say we have a problem of inequality. But again, Sweden has more billionaires per capita than the United States. Sweden has enormous wealth inequality. What they have is relative income inequality. If you want to solve that problem, go ahead. But the only way that you can solve it is capitalism. Teen Vogue is full of crap, and so are my colleagues at Duke. They're just mistaken. <laughs> the only way that you can solve, if you, if you actually care about poor people, here's the thing, Ed. Now, now you have got me going, damn it. <laughs> here's the thing. There's a bunch of PhDs in sociology who look at the world and say, you know, this is not right. I went to school, I got a bunch of A's, I got a PhD, and there's some guy that has a used car lot and he makes more money than I do. That's not right. We need a change. 
Well, you could have gotten a job that was productive instead of whatever it is that you do. So the, it would have been better if you'd actually produce something that people want. The, <laughs> the envy, the, when people that are worried about inequality are envious. So if you actually care about poor people, if you want to solve the problem of poverty, and this has been shown over and over again, and Sweden is a great example, you have to be capitalist. It's the only way to solve the problem of poverty. If you want to worry about envy and raise it to the status of social justice by calling it inequality, that's on you. Yeah. Uh, and, and one more. We got about two minutes before the end of this segment. But this is this is one that I, I came across, an article from uh, Canada a magazine called... Um, Let's see, where is this? Canadian Dimension. Uh, author is Richard Wolf, and he says, you, on COVID-19 and the failures of capital c- capitalism, uh, the result is that neither private capitalism nor the U.S. government performed its basic duty of, eco- of an economic system to protect and maintain public health and safety. U.S. capitalism's response to the coronavirus pandemic continues to be what it has been since December of 2019. Too little, too late. It failed. It is the problem. And I look at the world, yeah, because you kept kiwi fruits in all of the stores throughout the entire pandemic, and you, but you couldn't buy uh, buy na- napkins or a toilet paper, and you were upset that it's a failure of capitalism. This is the most absurd. It it is a remarkable claim. I've actually debated Richard Wolf, Wolf a couple of times. I I like him. He's a fine man, but he has a very doctrinaire approach to these problems. So. What I've noticed is for for a while in March, people were saying, oh, well, in a pandemic, nobody's a libertarian. By the end of March, people were saying, you know, in a pandemic, everybody's a libertarian (laughs) because we have all these restrictions on products. The FDA is slowing things down. We can't make masks. We can't make gloves. We need to lift all these rules. Well, we shouldn't have had the damn rules in the first place. So one way to solve this problem is to be a libertarian from the outset. And as far as capitalism failing, it's not surprised not surprising that markets shut down because they were illegal. We said that stores can't open, and maybe that's fine. Maybe it's okay. You, if you want to defend the fact that we have this lockdown, that's okay. But it's not. this was not a recession. This was government putting a closed sign on the economy. Yeah, we've been referring to it. I think this was uh, Bob Murphy referred to it as the Great Suppression. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we've encountered. Anyway, we're up against the bottom of the hour break here. I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe. Also, our Patreon site, patreon.com slash tsoe, where you can hear the, the show commercial free, as well as our bonus episodes that we record after the show. And that episode, the Patreon site is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Uh, so give them a look at 90minds.com. You need a mind to talk to 90 Minds. But right now, a word from our sponsors. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting Sage Accountants Network. 
www.thepatriotmedia.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Duke University Professor Michael Munger. And Mike, in your book, you talk about Dan Ariely, the author of Predictably Irrational. We've also had him on. Um, But you make a really good point about the behavioral economists in general. They take a large number of dim bulbs. They say, you know, but once they get together in a mob, they can suddenly solve all these problems. And you're talking about by voting. Um, and you know, when they stop there and they don't, they talk about the weaknesses of the market and people's irrationality, but they never apply it to government. You're, you're just, you're broad. You're not supposed to do that. Okay. Because I, know. So I actually got that. I have to admit, I got it from HL Mencken. Um, HL Mencken has this essay on democracy was that said when, when the suckers are running, it, it's such a beautiful sight to see all the people who someone promises them all the roads are going to be running downhill in both directions. Make me president. And they're, they, they get together in a mob and boy, that's beautiful. And so now my question for Dan is because Dan says that consumers don't have the information or cognitive power to make the decisions the market requires of them. I, that's right. That's why we have brand names. That was why we have repeat business. That's why we have the Food and Drug Administration. It's not perfect, but that, you know, I can't tell whether something is going to be safe and efficacious. Fair enough. So we have those things. The implication Dan has is that really smart people should choose for other people. And I've tried to get him to admit that. And he'll say, well, no, no, that's not right. This is a democracy. Really? So people who are not smart enough to choose a breakfast cereal are going to get together and decide foreign policy. That's remarkable. So not only is it that you think they're smart enough to do it, they can do it as a group. If you've ever looked at group decision making, and the the, the thing is that many people who agree with Dan, oh, democracy is the answer. They hate Donald Trump. They, They hate the fact that the Senate is controlled by the Republicans, but that's just an aberration. That's only true until we get good people in office. No, that is actually a feature of the system. You will not always be in power. And so having enough power to do the things that you want means that that power is going to be used to do a whole bunch of things that you don't want. So I've tried to summarize that in the catchphrase because it's useful to have some way of, of summarizing. And that is every flaw in consumers is worse than voters. Every flaw in consumers, it's real. Dan Ariely is correct when he says people have cognitive difficulties making these decisions. All of them are worse in voters. 
So if you have a list of the things that Dan has looked at, free stuff. Consumers will give way too much for free stuff. So if you if, if you uh, have a really high price, they won't buy it. If you give them a coupon and raise the price by the amount of the coupon, they'll come and buy it because they think they're getting a discount. Well, that's, that's true in spades in politics, that they'll vote for free stuff. I think college tuition should be free. Well, it won't be free. It just means you won't be paying it. It'll still be really, really expensive. I think healthcare should be free. Well, it won't be free. I'm going to pay for yours and you're going to pay for mine, which means that neither of us have any incentive to watch costs. And so the, the, the cognitive problems, you can just go down the list, the cognitive problems and biases that Dan Ariely says consumers have, he's right. It's every single one of them is worse than voters. So if you really think that we need someone's, and this is what I tried to press him, I've actually made him mad about this a couple of times because he's my Duke colleague, he's actually here mm-hmm. at Duke. He thinks that really smart people should be in charge and they should make the decisions that people should want to make. And the sort of person he has in mind is the guy he sees in the mirror every morning. Dan Ariely should be in charge. And so people who make this argument, are they're, they're just pretending they like democracy. They want dictatorship with themselves in charge. I don't know why you got mad. That brings to mind the Buckley quote, I'd rather be governed by the first 500 names in yeah. the Boston. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's a mistake to want to be governed by somebody who wants to govern. Right. <laughs> Good so the, point. Prison guard. You, you don't want somebody to be a prison guard who really, really wants to be a prison guard. It's true. It's true. You know, another thing you do really well in the book, I just, your chapters on price gouging, anti-price gouging laws were, were just brilliant. You lay out the three problems. But what, 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 give me the best case you can for why these laws are so counter or just irrational. I've come to believe they're not irrational. Economists usually talk about trade offs and we talk about subjective preferences. There's two considerations one is the material benefit that I expect to get as a result of buying something at a high price, the other is my sense of moral outrage at being taken advantage of in an emergency. And so I talk in one of those chapters about an example where people were buying ice in Raleigh after Hurricane Fran in 1996. The police came and arrested the ice sellers. And they impounded the truck and took the ice away. And the people waiting in line to buy ice as they watched the departing trucks clap. They clap. Now, why would they clap? And the answer is not irrational. It is not irrational. I disagree with it, but it's not irrational. They were so angry at being taken advantage of that they would prefer not to have the ice. Now, I happen to think that's because ice is relatively, I can do without it. And they felt like, oh, here's the police order is being restored. But here's, here is my argument against, you asked for the best argument, that's the best argument. People are entitled to their subjective preferences. That's the way democracy works. I still think they're wrong. The choice is this, we can pick empty shelves or high prices. Now, I'm a trained economist. Empty shelves means a price of infinity. I measured it. You can't buy it. So let's say it's $11 a bag for ice, or there isn't any ice. An infinite price is still higher than $11. You're better off with the $11 price and having some there. So there's an old joke here in North Carolina where there was a convenience store near the coast after a hurricane, 
and a guy comes in and it, it was it's really hot and there's not much power but the the convenience store owner is staying open he's got big stacks of water in bottles and the a case of water is $25 for a case and the consumer said that's outrageous you can't charge $25 for a case a across the street the price is $7 and the owner says well why don't you buy it there and the, the customer says, well, he's he's out. He doesn't have any water. And the owner says, oh, I tell you what, as soon as I run out, I'll charge $7. Oh. <laughs> well, the, but you make another point that I think is really profound that, you know, the guy that comes out of his couch watching the football game in Ohio and brings generators or needed supplies to a disaster area, he gets arrested versus the guy who does nothing. But feels bad. He looks on TV and says, Boy, that's really awful. I feel so bad for those people. I wonder what's on SportsCenter. Yeah. That guy doesn't get arrested. Nothing. And you also compare it to laying siege to a city. It yeah. would, that would be an act of war if an army did it. But we if, call a, it if a foreign force. army did it. No, an army did it. An, an yeah. army did do it. So after Hurricane Katrina, uh, an army did it. It was just the U.S. Army. And so it was not an act of war. Uh, but if a foreign army had done, because what they, they there were two trucks that were sent by Duke students with products that they were going to try to deliver, they were turned away at the perimeter because I'm, I'm not making this up. They said you might try to sell this. We cannot allow them through because you might try to sell them. It's if that's the worst thing that could happen. There's people inside there that are dying, and the worst thing that could happen is that they get a choice they would not otherwise have had at a price slightly higher than they would prefer. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, Mike, I'm out here in California where we're being uh, just inundated with wildfires. And of course, it's all blamed on climate change, but the whole carbon emissions market failure, we need a carbon tax. I'm sure you've heard this. But you've taught me and other economists have taught me that prices are not an input to the process. They're the result of a discovery process. How confident are you that, gov that government can, knows what the right price to put on a carbon tax? Interestingly, I was just writing about this today. One of the people who is usually associated with the idea of a compensatory tax was um, Arthur Pigou. So we, we call them Pigouvian taxes. In 1912, Pigou basically laid out the public choice paradigm. He described the problem and said that a loud voice group of constituents, the ignorance of the government, the fact that they may have other interests, all of these things prevent the government from knowing what it is that they should do. So this is a much harder problem than you think it is, said the guy that everybody quotes in favor of putting these taxes in. So the, they've never read Pagu. They just know that, well, what Pagu said was you can have taxes. He said a lot of stuff. You're being pretty selective if what you're saying is. So here's the thing. Price reflects the opportunity cost of resources. It tells you how much somebody else needs this thing. If you don't have price, you do not have that information. You can make a guess, but you're going to do a bad job at it. Whether you're acting in a market system and we say, oh, that's market failure because the prices don't reflect the opportunity cost, or you're a bureaucrat sitting in some office. So what Pagu says, that economists sitting in their studies cannot imagine the correct value. Yeah, yeah, great, great point. 
the other part of your book that I really enjoyed was you take on recycling pretty strongly and you have this acid test for determining whether something is a resource or garbage. Can you explain that? Sure. I mean, I, I can, I try to do a, a visual thing so the listeners can just imagine I have my hands cupped in front of me. So something is my hand, but I have the other hand over it. You can't see what it is. I'm not going to tell you what it is. And we'll play a version of 20 questions. Is this garbage or is it a resource? But you only get to ask one question. And that is, what is the price of that thing? Do I have to pay you to take it? Or will you pay me for it? If you'll pay me for it, it's a resource. If I have to pay you, it's garbage. It's not actually worth anything. That's actually the definition of garbage. And interestingly, um, the I got a bunch of emails in the last couple of weeks from people who had been friends who said, you know, I just, I hate what you write about recycling. It turns out that a lot of plastic recycling for years has been a sham that there's a recycling industrial complex. And in this case, I actually think that US corporations, among others, but US corporations in particular, have sold a bill of goods. They recognize that if they invested a small amount of money in recycling, they would not be responsible for where this stuff went. I think it's a property rights question. The property rights question is, if you produce packaging, is there a way that we can make the producer responsible for the disposal or reuse of that? Now, what companies have done instead is say, we're going to have recycling. And they pay a bunch of very earnest, useful idiots to go around and say how important recycling is. So it's a, it's a bootleggers Baptist coalition. The, 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 the companies that have benefited from the recycling industrial complex and the earnest young people that have worked to, to advance recycling, it turns out that it was harmful to the environment. And I had an experience that I wrote about a little bit in that, in that article where I, I, I mentioned the fact that I was talking to a young lady who was in uh, New England. She was the uh, public relations person for that the, the city. And she said, you have to realize it doesn't matter how much recycling costs, it's always cheaper. That it's important that people learn to recycle because it's the right thing to do. Well, no, not if what you care about is the environment. They've, they've lost sight of the fact that they were trying to help the environment. If you want to help the environment, use the Munger test. If it's garbage, throw it away. I've, I, there are people who run mayonnaise jars through the dishwasher. dishwasher. They put mayonnaise because they want them to be clean. This is garbage. And as you point out, whether the government separates our trash or we do it, it's a, it's a waste of labor. There's only one resource we will not get more time of and more, more, more of, and that is time. Well, Mike, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming back on. Ed's going to take you home in the last segment, but just thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure thank to you. speak with you. Uh, all right, Ed, uh, folks, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email to askpsoe at verisage.com. Go out to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. Give us a rating. We'll read it on the air. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise we're back with Professor Michael Munger of Duke University. Uh, during the break, folks, uh, Michael and I d- found out that each other, we were running in for our, our respective uh, Texas or, and North Carolina house. Uh, so let's talk a little bit of uh, politics. We, you talk a lot about business and, and how government, but what about this thing called the duopoly? What <laughs> this, this thing that, that the Commission on Presidential Debates, which sounds so official, that is a fully wholly owned subsidiary of the Democrat and Republican Party. Um, how, how do we how do we take down the duopoly? Well, first of all, I think we have to ask why it is that we have this naive faith in it. My first job out of graduate school, as Ron mentioned earlier, was at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. So I worked on antitrust policy, and one of the things that we were concerned about was concentrations of power in very small numbers of firms. Well. If you were to ask Ford and General Motors, how many car companies do we want? They'd say, you know, two, that makes perfect sense. What competition? If you were to ask Coke and Pepsi, how many soft drink companies do we need? Two would be plenty. And we would say, that's a violation of the Sherman Act. We're not going to allow that. And we'd be right. Now, it may be that there's two large car companies and two large soft drink companies, but that's because they're providing cars or drinks that people want to buy. You can't have rules that prevent others from entering the industry. For some reason, we don't have any problem with two large, extremely wealthy, well-funded at public expense corporations called the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. They get to make laws to decide how many parties there are. So it's a clear conflict of interest. It should be a violation of antitrust law if we were to think of this as any kind of competitive process. I have to admit, when I was running for governor in 2008, I was a little bit worried because all through 2008, George W. Bush was still saying that he felt like it was okay to invade countries that were not democracies. Well, if you look at North Carolina, we had a set of ballot access laws that actually violate the UN Charter. So you look at the set of rules 
um, it says that you that everybody gets to vote and there can be no restriction on starting a new party and people should be allowed to vote for the party or candidate of their choice. Well, North Carolina was in violation of those rules. I was I was worried that George Bush would invade. He's going to take over North Carolina and establish democracy the way he did. Well, it didn't work very well in the Middle East either, but it might have worked in North Carolina if somebody had said you actually have to allow third parties. So seriously, Ed, I understand that a first past the post voting system where that is whoever wins the most, we're going to end up with two parties. But there's nothing to say it's the party with a D on their sweater and a party with an R on their sweater. Just skipping to that result makes an enormous difference. So I have a, a grad student, Dan Lee, who's now at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who did a number of papers researching the sort of political culture of states that have more or less uh, permissive ballot access laws. And it turns out that states that allow third parties are more responsive, there are fewer prosecutions, um, the, 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 the way that voters understand government is better, uh, allowing people to participate in debates. So third parties do a good job, along with the media, of policing the two state-sponsored parties. So even if you don't want to vote for one of the third parties, for one of the independent parties, it happens I'm a libertarian, if you don't want to vote for them, you should want more generous ballot access laws because your state government will perform better. And one of the things I want to ask you about, there's a you know fairly controversy in the Libertarian Party. Would do you think that that going to rank choice voting is a is a potential uh, workaround around that first past the post and would encourage more parties um, and or the what they're doing in California, which is the open primary system and you just have the top two. Which of those is, is well, uh, on your in your mind the bet, better of the yeah. two? Top two is a disaster and it should be illegal. Um, actually, California, in a lot of districts, there's no Republican. It's just whoever the, the top two are both Democrats. So um, a number of the states that originally favored top two, California and Oregon in particular, have now rethought that, that top two is a pretty bad idea. Ranked choice voting is actually going to happen in Maine, which is pretty impressive. So uh, any system that allows people to express their, two, their true preference without being punished by having their vote not count. That's what people are worried about. So uh, when I ran in 2008, sometimes I was polling 7 or 8%, and I ended up getting 2.9%. And people asked, why did that happen? Well, it was a close race. And a, a, quite a few people, when I would talk to them, and said, you know, I would vote for you, but I'm worried that I'll waste my vote. I'm going to vote for one of the other two. Well, wait a minute. Political scientists call that vote the lote. L-O-T-E, lesser of two evils. If you vote for evil, you're going to get evil. I'm sure of it. So even if it's the lesser of two evils, you're still going to get evil. So what, what burns myself is that the parties think they own your votes, and you, like sheep, go to the polls and deliver them. A third-party candidate, when you've got the choice, I, I, I heard the... The, the choice between the two major party candidates for president described as a chainsaw. What are you going to brush your, your teeth with? A chainsaw or a roadkill possum? Well, those are not very good choices. I'd like to have a better choice than a running chainsaw or a, ro a dried up roadkill possum to brush my teeth with. So the, if the two state sponsored parties are giving you bad choices, go ahead and vote for a third party. 
Because if you vote for the lesser of two evils, you're just complicit in making sure that evil wins. Yeah, my my favorite this week has been all the people I've had to educate on. Uh, well, a vote for, for Joe Jurgensen is a vote for and fill in the candidates they oppose. And I'm just like, they don't like. Yeah, by, by what logic <laughs> do you get there at all? It's it really it really burns. That's the one that burns me because it's, yeah. it's just it's so condescending to say that you know my vote on principle is really a vote for something that I detest. Right. If you, the person who said that, had any principle, you would vote. You would break this system too. You're, yeah. Don't don't pick between a chainsaw and a roadkill possum. You can do something else. Yeah. Or or if you really thought that your vote needed to mean something, you would move to Wisconsin because where you live in California or New York is not going to matter. <laughs> it, it certainly won't matter there. Yes. <laughs> so interesting stuff. Well, we, before we, we started, I made this joke about the the uh, the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying two weeks ago when it seems like it was 10 years with this news cycle. Um, and I know that's something that that Russ Roberts has talked a lot, lot about is this political discourse is just getting more and more sour and the tribalism. Uh, how how do, do, do you see us emerging out of this at some point? You know, is it, this maybe going to get or have you just have we reached the bottom of the barrel? I mean, in your view? You asked a big question. My son is a political science professor at Penn State University and does research on this. So um, I am I am interested in this question. Let me try to summarize what I think the problem is. For a very long time, we had institutions in the news that gave us two things, curation and verification. Curation tells you what's important. Verification tells you what's true. So there was a ceremony every night at 6.30, where Walter Cronkite, it was like Mount Rushmore speaking, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a great stone face of truth and importance would tell you what's important and what's true. Now, you know, I understand that people got sort of sick of that and tried to break out. The problem is, if you lose curation and verification, then you no longer know what's important and you no longer know what is true. So we're in a period that's quite a bit like the period immediately after the invention of the printing press, where people would run off pamphlets and just make stuff up because there was no there was a new institution, new a new way of sending things out. Twitter, Facebook, the uh, TikTok, all of those things are going to break institutions before we get new ones to do those two functions. I think we're in for a rough time. I think we're in for a rough decade. All right. Well. Got a lot in there, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us on The Soul of Enterprise. This has absolutely been a blast. And hopefully we one day when all of this starts to lift, my brother, as I mentioned to you last time, also works at Duke. So I would love to love to come out and, and have a beer. Maybe I can sit in, in between you and Dan Ariely. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> but thanks for being on The Soul of Enterprise. Uh, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We have Rabbi Daniel Lappin, Ed. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. For more information, you can go up there, see the archive page of all 311 shows now. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Join Dr. Barbara Young for a groundbreaking series after the pandemic. What's Next Summit? As part of her show, Transformation for Success. 12 prominent national speakers, success experts, and thought leaders will share their thoughts, perspectives, and action steps that will lead to transformative change for individuals in five key areas. These shows will air each Tuesday through September 8th and are available live or on demand on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or Amazon Kindle. The Voice America interactive radio player powered by Aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for your iPhone, Android, or Amazon Kindle powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple App Store Amazon, or Google Play. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon.